fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGGBT. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, with me. The physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, it is awesome to be here once again, a win in your column. Um, I did not know if I wanted to see this movie. The, the trailers um, really convinced me not to. Um, but you are that analytical mastermind, and I loved the movie. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're welcome. I love overpowering trailers because those are honed. Those are specifically designed to get you in the movie theater. And if they didn't and I did, I'm going to take that win, Dr. Denon, because I love pleasantly surprising you because you come up with great stuff about movies you don't think you're going to like. That's my favorite part, Denon. And what am I talking about? We're going to find out in this episode, uh, but not before we talk to the man who is possibly the most pleasantly surprised individual I've ever met, and that's our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepster. Ben, where are you recording from this week? Dan, this week I've taken a quick little trip up to the Santa Clarita Valley. I know how much you love UFOs, and apparently there's a real doozy up here. I can't wait to witness this thing for myself and get some great pictures for you. Well, I hope that you do, because if that's the case, we may do exactly what everyone in this movie is trying to do, and that is prove the existence of extraterrestrial life. Uh, so we're talking about the movie Nope. This is Jordan Peele's latest movie, and I have to say... You know, there is, there's a lot of hype that goes around his movies, and normally I don't buy into the hype. But he is a guy who's really – the one thing he does really well is creates premise, a premise for a movie that I've never seen before or, or heard of. Very unique, very clever, and this movie fits right in there because, yeah, you know, this is – he really creates a sense of existential, existential dread. It's very Lovecraftian. Uh, it's very mysterious. And it's a well-trodden topic that he manages to find a new spin on. So, you know, I can't say enough nice things about this movie because this is right up my alley, Denon. And I know, as you said, you really enjoyed this movie and didn't expect to, to like it coming in. So what changed your mind as you were watching it? Well, two big things. One is I generally don't like horror, but I realized I have a very narrow definition of horror, Dan. Mm -hmm. What I don't really enjoy are movies that are just about blood, guts, and jump scares. Jump scares tend not to impact me. I get startled like the best of us, but, you know, neither here nor there. Um, blood, I tend to close my eyes for. So really, you know, a, 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 a bad horror movie, I think, is what I don't like, I've come to realize. That sounds about um, right. Yeah, that sounds those yeah. Are pretty bad movies, yeah. But this movie was, you know, I also, I'm curious what genre one would really say it was. Mm -hmm. For me, I don't know that it caused dread so much as excitement. Like, it was fascinating to see this take on interaction with another creature, right? Like, it was scary because it was a predator. It was scary because it could sneak up on you. But, you know, that's no different than, say, a shark to you, Dan. Right, if we use an analogy. Sure. But, I mean, that's terrifying, right? I mean, I, I don't want to be around something circling me, waiting for me to make a mistake, because God knows I'm going to, and then it's going to eat me, turn me into liquid, and, and you know, shoot my pocket change all around the countryside. I, I don't want that to happen to me. Um, ben, do you want that to happen to you? I, I don't think anyone wants them to, that to happen to There's them. There's some weirdos them. out there, uh, Ben, that might want that, but um, you're not one perhaps, of them. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> uh, I, I just think... You know, it's really interesting. It is hard for me to 
truly call this a horror movie. It's hard to place it really anywhere else either. Um, I think I think in some ways, you know, we would say Jordan Peele is a genre-defying artist in in this way that, you know, it it, it doesn't have the traditional horror because I, I guess I guess there are creatures like in other movies where it's it's existential, it's unknowable, unseeable monsters that are chasing you, but even then, like. It, it's not very scary. It's more what's interesting about the movie is this excitement to kind of figure out what's actually happening more than being afraid of it. Well, I'm going to tell you this as the master of film and television, I'm going to step right in here and tell you guys a little something. Uh, this really, when a lot of people compare directors to Alfred Hitchcock, I, I, I kind of, you know, roll my eyes and say, okay, whatever, because they don't really capture what Hitchcock was doing. Right. But if you look at Psycho, which is considered the first slasher movie. It hardly represents, you know, Halloween <laughs> or, you know, the movies you don't like then, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. I, like the, I like the first ones in the series, but the series, but they're all about jump scares, cutting people up, blood and all that. If you look at Psycho, it's not like that at all. It's really a psychological horror movie. I mean, people do die. You know, the famous scene in the shower scene in Psycho is, you know, one of the, was one of the scariest scenes in movies in cinema forever. You don't even see this, the knife penetrate skin. You don't need to see all that the gore, right. and it scared people. It's it's chocolate sauce in a, in a in a you know in a shower, but I think he really captures it in this movie. We see a monster. We don't really see it do a lot of its dirty work. We see the aftermath. We see the potential, and it's really psychological terror that gets you. And I think Denon, I think you're really susceptible to this type of horror because I know I am. Well, I, I susceptible, yes, but I love it too. Mm. Like the psychological suspense I love. I was thinking about it as you two were talking. I wonder, is there a genre, as, you know, Dan, of what I might call the, the hunter-predator movie? Um, not predator versus alien, which may fall into right. that category. Sure does, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, but I feel like very quickly, like very early on, you know there's an object. You think it's a UFO. And then very quickly – um, the the main character OJ realizes no it's it's a predator mm -hmm. and it becomes this you know predator man conflict it's sort of like how do you handle the crazy tiger you know in the village um, in the jungle kind of situation and the suspense is around the the hunt you know they're in the hunt for a picture the creatures in the hunt to to kill them there's just that interesting sort of primal hunt thing that I think we're all hardwired to react to as um, hunter-gatherers from a few thousand years ago, or maybe more. Or, yeah. or <laughs> well, I think you're being a little, putting a little more feeling in that than necessary. I think it's just hungry. I don't know if there's any <laughs> intention in the creature other than, you know, wanting to eat. Sure. But I, I think I think it's like Isn't Josh, that right? what hunters are? Isn't that what predators are? <laughs> I think that's are, the definition ben? of hunting. Just hungry? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Some people like to kill. Uh, I mean, if anything, this is just, you know, sky jaws, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a, a creature that's hard to see uh, and chases people when they come into its domain and eats them. I mean, it's just it's just jaws in the sky, right? I guess so. I mean, I think that is a little dismissive. I think it's got a little more uh, very nuanced. Much so, but, than, but, but yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it has the extra element of it's a creature we don't under, even know exists, which right. makes it a little more interesting. Well, actually, a lot more interesting. We know what a shark's capable of. Yeah. We don't know what this is capable of, uh, which is interesting. And I will say the one thing that it is capable of, which is kind of strange, the first, you know, the first inkling 
that something is awry. As you know, when we're the first couple scenes of the movie, where all of a sudden these metal objects come shooting out of the sky. Uh, one takes out OJ's, uh, I believe it's his dad or his uncle. I forget who it is, but he's de- his dad. His dad, yes. Um, and shoots a quarter through his head. Keith David, one of my favorite actors, is out of this movie. Uh, you know, in a blink of an eye, um, literally. Uh, and and what we come to find out is that there's these things being you know shot from the sky, and it made me think. Meteorites are a real possibility. You know, a creature shooting quarters and, and keys around is not as much, it's not as possible as a meteorite coming through the sky. But, you know, what are the chances of, of something falling from the heavens and killing you? Whether it's, you know, a, an airplane's toilet water or it's, uh, you know, a, a, a chunk of iron from the Andromeda galaxy firing through our atmosphere. You know, what are the chances that it's going to come through uh, and, and kind of take you out? Well, I'm, I'm glad to say, Dan, that they're very small. I can't give you exact number, but it's pretty clear if they were bigger, we'd have a lot more news reports about meteors falling on people and killing them. So I'm just going by that empirical fact. <laughs> I do have a number for you, Dennett. The chances of being hit by a meteorite are 1 in 1.6 million. I don't know if that helps you with what you're saying, but it's 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 there, I, is what I'm saying. It does help because that confirms that it's small. It is small. <laughs> um, <laughs> One divided by 1.6 million is not a very big number. Um, and so I'm feeling pretty good about that. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. The Earth is kind of pretty big. The meteor for, has, you know, lots of places it can land. Um, it's also kind of small, though, from a target point of view. There's more empty space than Earth. Um, we've got our very nice big moon that often takes care of blocking some of these or messing them up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most of the Earth is water, and that's not where we live. Um, this may be you know, something we didn't address in our um, lovely episode about building cities under the sea. Right. Um, but if you're too close to the surface... Um, more meteors fall in the ocean than on land. Just by definition, there's more ocean. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, the, we we did not address meteor safety, Dan. That was an oversight <laughs> of the brain trust. <laughs> we didn't. Yeah, it certainly yeah. was, Dan. And we need to address that in a follow up. Yeah. Well, and even then, you have the issue of most pe- people are also very concentrated in in what land there is on the Earth. People use not a lot of it. At least, you know, most people are in cities, and most cities are in coastal areas or on rivers and other places. So. Mm-hmm. Most of the Earth is uninhabited, and you know that's where the, most of the meteors end up. Well, I will tell you, there's an interesting story. I believe I mentioned it in one of our other episodes, but it, it bears repeating here. There's only one person that we know of in recorded human history who's been struck by a meteorite and lived. So if these things do hit you, you're done for is what I'm saying. Uh, it's a woman named Ann Hodges. Now, to be fair, I don't want to take anything away from her story, but if we're going to tell it, we should be accurate. The meteorite did fall and hit a radio. In her, it came through a roof and then hit a radio, bounced off the radio, and then hit her. Uh, it left quite a nasty <laughs> quite a nasty bruise. Uh, I'll see <laughs> if I can find pictures and put it up because it's, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. But she lives. So, you know, it can happen, but not very often. You know, Dan, and in this situation, something I'm, I have to admit, um, despite being an ancient alien expert mm-hmm. from the Netflix streaming show Ancient Aliens. Um, now on Netflix, I, I believe. Yes, now on Netflix. I am, I am not necessarily a meteorite expert. Okay, fair um, enough. But I, I do believe, you know, just going from some of the physics I, I'm aware of, and I'm, I'm curious how our engineer would feel about this, mm-hmm. I would be more worried about the heat of the meteor mm-hmm. than its mass, right? So when we think of the type of damage you can get, if something hits you, right, 
um, you're thinking, oh, blunt force trauma from the meteor. Now, it is going pretty fast, right? It's going through the atmosphere, but there's a lot of air friction. Um, it's burning away. Who knows what mass it is? You know, now, if it's still like the one that caused, you know, the big craters and wiped out the dinosaurs, that's smashing me, okay? Let's yeah. be clear. <laughs> yeah. um, but if it's smaller, it's also incredibly hot, right? And And that heat is just going to possibly incinerate or set me on fire right away. Um, so that's what worries me about the meteor more than, than its mass and speed. But Ben, w- yeah. what aspect of physics of the meteor scares you the most? Yeah, it could go I, through I, like a hot knife through butter, I imagine, not even set you on that's fire. That's what I'm I've thinking. Yeah. Well, it, it's a combination of the two. So you, you have the issue of it, it's, it's an object that's traveling very quickly and it is also hot. Now, the heat isn't a big... So you mentioned this this lady who got hit by a meteor. It bounced off of her, left a big bruise, but it probably didn't burn her because the, t- the time it was in contact with her probably wasn't long enough to really transfer any mm-hmm. of that heat energy. The bigger concern there is if it landed on her flammable carpet and then bur- also burnt her house down. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> it was in the 50s. Everything was pretty much flammable back then. If Everything's I, pretty flammable research. now still, too. Mm, fair uh, enough. Yeah, we put a lot enough. of uh, plastics and stuff in, in things that are not very... Uh, fire safe, unfortunately. Um, so I, I think the thing to remember about heat is it takes it takes a little bit of time for heat to transfer. So if this thing gets embedded in you somehow, then then you really do have to worry about that burn, or you have to worry about starting a fire. Um, but if it just bounces off of you, I wouldn't worry about the heat. I'd worry about the blunt force trauma. <laughs> yeah, I think she did get knocked through a wall afterwards. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely cartoonish in its impact. Uh, now, a couple of quick numbers here. I don't like to bog you down with numbers. I leave that to our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siepser. But what I will say is getting hit by a meteorite, 1 in 1.6 million. Getting struck by lightning is 1 in 135,000. So very, very different. Uh, and there is a guy who got struck by lightning seven times. I was looking up some of the most unlucky people. He, was, he, he, he made the list. And just to put this into perspective, one last number for you guys. The odds of winning the Powerball is 1 and 195 million. So you actually have a, you have a 200 times greater chance of getting... Wait, am I doing this right? I don't know. But it's 200... I think it's almost a 200 better chance of getting hit by a meteorite than winning the Powerball, although I may have that backwards. But think about that next no, time you're going out. Is that right? Uh, you got it right, Dan. And, and, okay. and, but the best thing about it is um, it's even a greater chance of getting hit by a meteor because um, when you think about it, well, unless you buy a ticket, like to win Powerball, <laughs> right. you actually have to yeah. buy the ticket. <laughs> right, right. So for many people, the chance is exactly zero. Right. While yeah. it still remains one in one point whatever million to get hit by a meteor. So, yeah. you know, the probability is kind of weird that way. It's sort of like, you know, as we talk about dangers and probabilities, I think I've shared this before. Your risk of dying in a shark attack is the same as having a being killed by a vending machine falling on you from the sheer statistics of the numbers. Right. Um, but one only right. happens in water and one only happens happens if you shake vending machines. Right. So your actual personal risk is often very different. <laughs> you determine your destiny is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. It, it's so, yeah, it, it's so fu- interesting to think about the odds when you cu- it comes to the lottery. Because if you think about it for yourself, you almost certainly will not win. But somebody wins. And why isn't it, it you, right? It, it's such a yeah. weird paradox. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Someone's got to win, but 195,000, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a big number. Um, but bad. you know how you win, Dan? Yeah. You know how you win? Hmm. You get yourself a mug. Okay, explain. There are no losers in the world of mugs. Um, and particularly if your mug announces to the world that you're a physics phenom. 
You know, mm-hmm. there's just nothing better than a mug to make you feel like a winner, to know that you're a winner, and all you have to do is purchase it, and it's guaranteed. It's not like a lottery. Or yeah. purchase it for someone else, because we are entering the holidays, so that's always a nice thing yes. to do. If you can't give someone a billion dollars, the next best thing is an FGGBT mug, in my opinion. Absolutely. Or an FGGBT water bottle while you're waiting in the lottery line to buy that ticket for mm-hmm. your special someone. Uh, have a nice sip of water because it's, uh, well, I guess it's, you know what? It's cold out now. So perhaps this would be used to keep a warm beverage warm. You know, ha- put a nice cocoa in there uh, while you <laughs> wait in the cold line for your uh, Powerball ticket. I think it's underrated how delicious hot cocoa tastes inside one of our stainless steel um, <laughs> water bottles. And also, if you win a billion dollars, you can put anything you want on a shirt. But until then, you can buy one that says something like Biology is Nature's Technology right there on the FGGBT.com forward slash merch. That's where you get it. So obviously, that is a shameless plug. Denon, you got your shameless plug in for Ancient Aliens, where you are the Ancient Aliens expert, the scientist on the show. And as our scientist, I got to ask you a question here. You know, we see this alien creature in the clouds, right? So I want to kind of talk about this, which I really enjoyed this, this aspect of the movie because it's, it's not a flying ship. It is in its of itself an entire creature. It's like a, a whale in the sky. You know, it's it's like you know you mentioned Jaws of the of the sky, Ben. This is more like a skate or a ray of the sky. But I think that that's interesting because it maneuvers like a spaceship. Um, this is I want to talk about this aspect first because we know the the medium of water, at least to 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 my my novice brain, suggests an ability to be able to stay afloat and to maneuver like that. To do that. With no seeming propulsion to be able to maneuver like that in the sky was kind of amazing. So, what were you thinking when you saw this then? And what are the physics hurdles that that a creature would have to overcome to do this? Well, I, I like your analogies to skate and rays. I actually was thinking more jellyfish, Dan, mm-hmm. um, particularly because at the end it really changes its shape in a way that made me think of jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Um, you may be a little nervous of sharks. I'm not going to say scared because, you know, I, I think scared you're, you're more nervous. Exactly. <laughs> real exactly. Me, I'm terrified of jellyfish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go right there. Yeah. Um, and that made this a little more terrifying. Some tentacles would have just freaked me out right from the beginning. <laughs> I think that would have made it impossible to watch it. Yeah. Um, but it really is, I, I think it comes down to a very simple density issue, right? You know, Water and air, from a physics point of view, are both the same thing. They're fluids. We tend to distinguish between liquid and gas, but as you get deep into physics, you know the only difference between a liquid and gas is its density. Right. Um, And that just determines how you float. Everything else is the same. And so I love – there's a line actually where OJ, not to counteract you or contradict you, Dan, OJ says it's not moving like a ship or a a spaceship. Right. Right. He realizes it's an animal kind of by the way it moves. It – it moves much more like a swimming animal yeah. than a spaceship. And so all of that I just thought was super – just a really, really interesting and intelligent decision to make on the filmmaker side and shockingly sort of realistic and, and well presented. There's some problems when it starts eating stuff we'll talk about later. Right. But basically this is just a density thing and I'm really excited by it. Yeah, I, I think you know if you think about it as a giant balloon and – and I think the jellyfish is a great example here, right? Like – Jellyfish are neutrally buoyant creatures that float around in the ocean, like on the currents. And, you know, sometimes, they, you know, they can like flap their little hoods and things to 
propel themselves a little bit here and there. And I think you can think of this creature kind of in the same way. It's it's instead of being neutrally buoyant in water, it's, it seems to be neutrally buoyant in the air. And then it has some sort of, you know, obviously it has very powerful lungs in some way because it can suck things up easily. So clearly it would be able to use, you know, propulsion through that same method of, you know, using forced air to navigate the sky as, as it pleased. One of the things that I really liked about that, because you guys are bringing up a couple different issues, is that what they did is they took the UFO phenomenon and took everything that people see, whether it's a ship in the sky moving at incredible speeds, seeming to disappear, having being able to beam things up, uh, you know, uh, cattle mutilations, all of this stuff. It's it's explained in biological terms with this creature. To me, that was uh, it was that was the really cool part of this movie, where I think no one's really gone there before. I mean, it begs the question of are there others, and where you know where are they? Where do they come from? But uh, from that aspect, I really like this creature being explain explaining all the stuff that we. See see in any sort of UFO phenomenon. Dan, I, I I think I've shared this privately with you, or maybe that was just a dream. We shouldn't talk about that then. <laughs> maybe not. Um, but <laughs> but I think I think this is the best ever scientific explanation I've heard of UFOs. Okay. To your point, it ticks off every aspect of it. Um, it is not that incredible to think of a creature that evolved to float in the sky. Why wouldn't we have that as one option on this planet? We have a sky and we have creatures and we have evolution and we've had a lot of time, right? So it's not inconceivable. That is the recipe, right? I guess that is the recipe for yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, that is the recipe. Yeah. And and even better, it we know things have electrical properties and we can go into the details of that later, but that is the other phenomenon you see. I yeah. would just add to your list of things, right? Beaming yeah. people up, electrical effects. We know there's bioluminescence. Mm -hmm. um, so glowing in the night sky, disappearing, well, camouflage. Animals disappear before yep. our eyes all the time. Yep. So this is this is the perfect UFO explanation. I really can't find a, a flaw with it, except some minor things about maybe what happens when it eats heavy stuff. But other than that, I, I kudos, kudos. I think this wins an award. I think you're right, Dan. This is really one of the best ways to explain UFOs. I, th I think the issue I have is this creature, how is there only one of them? Or is there only one of them? Where, you know, where's its buddies? Where's its siblings? Where's its parents? Um, I'm really curious about that aspect of it. Are, are, maybe these things are kind of haunting all the rugged western hillsides of you know, uh, Southern California, and you know, we just don't see them for some reason. Uh, but you know, <laughs> if it was a predator that's evolved to the to this state, I would assume there must be quite a few of them somewhere. Oh, there are some places in the country, you know, Skinwalker Ranch is one of them, where, where strange phenomena seem to be centrally located. And if there was a biological creature causing all of this, this would be an interesting explanation for that. Like, maybe they are territorial, and maybe they do have a habitat like everything else, you know. And... He, there may not need to be a mom, a dad, and a, you know, and, and siblings, right? Like it may not be. We have that. That's our mammalia-centric view, right? I mean, jellyfish. As the only person in the group who's had jellyfish kicked into their face, as I recounted on a previous episode, <laughs> I'm, I'm intimately familiar with jellyfish and the entire Nidera phylum, and a lot of them have budding, asexual reproduction. Now, sure. it's interesting to think of something this large and this predatory being asexually produced because then there's almost no limit. There's no way to really, once they're isolated, they can create 
other creatures of their own. That is a scary thought because in some ways being able to control predator population by stopping sexual reproduction is a way to limit their effectiveness. But that is actually a terrifying aspect. I didn't think about that. Um, now I am getting a little scared. Well, Dan, I can calm you down on that one okay. a little bit, right? Because that's a metabolically limited rate. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about these creatures is thinking about their biology and what they eat and how much they eat. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's clear they eat some large prey, but I have a feeling floating around in the sky is not a heavy metabolic load. Um, I don't know that these creatures need to eat a lot except to generate the large wind, right, which mm -hmm. they only need periodically. So I do wonder if, for instance, we would not know how many birds they're just casually sucking up with minimal um, metabolic um, mm. intake. Mm -hmm. And we also don't know... Um, there are many species of slime mold, right, that it takes a certain stressor event to trigger the equivalent of budding and spreading. So mm -hmm, it right. could be that, you know, this creature, it reproduces by budding, but only under certain extreme biological conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's what limits the number of these. So I think very rare, singular, floating jellyfish creatures that bud occasionally are the clear explanation um, and match very nicely to the rate of UFO observations that we have. And, and perhaps the, the, you know, rampage it's going on right now is it's, is it's preparation for that budding event. You know, it's bringing mm -hmm. in a lot of extra calories right now right. to do that. Whereas normally it just, you know, catches some, you know, birds and whatever <laughs> every once in a while. And it's fine. Well, I, I think that's interesting because this, you know, this, um, this binging, right, of of human mm -hmm. beings. Yeah, this is kind of interesting because again, this is there's a lot of biological comparison here to the baleen whale, which has a biological filter as it goes through the water and just sucks up gallons of water and it filters it out with the um, uh, its little teeth up front and it filters out the plankton and that's that's its digestion. And I think we see a little bit of that here. It does kind of suck up everything in the area. Um, but it must have some sort of biological filtering system to, you know, cut out the dirt and dust and, um, you know, uh, pieces of glass and chairs and everything else that it ends up getting caught in its, you know. That, that seems to be the spitting mechanism, Dan, that it uses <laughs> where it spits it back out. Right, right, I mean, yeah. I, I think there's only two things that I really wonder about in this film that I would, if this is an accurate depiction of a jellyfish floating creature that I would question. Um, one is to what you just said, like the large number of people it sucks up all at once at the at the performance. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be, if if I do the math right, I mean, that's mass, whether you're digesting it or not, and that's a lot of mass all at once. Um, I feel like you mess up your buoyancy and the creature finds itself sitting on the ground. Right. Vulnerable. Yeah. So that that was a bit problematic. Um, people are not light, no matter how much this, this creature is. Right. Um, and... Um, it's, it's possible, but I'm intrigued by what appears to be the biological design that the intake and outtake tubes are the same, um, hmm. as far as we can tell. Okay. Right? That you, you, right. You, you intake your food through one orifice, we might say, and then outtake it through the same orifice. Now, that, that is not impossible, mm -hmm. um, but it's an interesting evolutionary design. Those are my two intriguing <laughs> questions on this feeding mechanism. Well, I, I think if you think of it more as like a jellyfish where – these, you know, they don't really have full digestive systems so much as they have, you know, stomachs that kind of envelop things that get near them and then open back up when it's finished digesting. Or, ah. or like a same thing with like a carnivorous plant, right? Right. They don't, yeah. there's no system. It's just a digestive sac. It, it is. It 
A single intake and outtake. Yeah. I, I like that. And, and there is a biological precedent for this. There are lots of animals that have, you know, one hole in, one hole out kind of a situation. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's it's not unheard of. Um, I mean, this is at scale. This is an extraordinarily large creature, which I think that kind of throws me off a little bit when we start talking about this stuff. As we can see it, yeah. uh, you know, uh, jellyfish are, are pretty small. Even the largest Portuguese man of war or whatever, they're, they're still pretty small in comparison this is a very large creature absorbing. Uh, you mentioned people aren't light, right? People aren't small. And these are Americans. You know, these, these are two or three times larger than the average human being. So uh, that's a lot of meat that it's, well, not really meat. It's a lot of um, yeah. dough, yeah. right? Nutrients. Yeah, a lot of um, nutrients. Yeah. Calories, yeah. calories, yeah. a lot of calories. A lot yeah. going in there. Th there's also the, the other potential that it's the expulsion we see isn't the final expulsion but it's more akin to a predatory bird like an owl which you know pukes up the the bones and the hair and the stuff it can't digest right and you know we don't know for sure that that was the end hole for this creature that's <laughs> just what it got rid of right away you know it's true we don't we don't know if it's the end hole but i do i do love that's a, that's another t-shirt every single week this guy uh i don't know if it's the end hole uh, one thing I want before we leave the, the creature and talk about its predatory nature, one thing I've got to talk about here is, you know, you mentioned it briefly, then, and I had forgotten about it in my list, but you're right. It has the ability to kind of eliminate, neutralize electricity and electric gadgets in the area. It almost worked like a reverse electric eel. I don't know how that's possible. It, can you create a potential differential that actually will, in you know, lack of a better term, suck electricity away? Well, that's the wonderful thing about electricity is that we have positive negative charges and we know how to shield electricity, right? We can do it all the time. This is, this is the final piece that I love the principle, um, the, you know, the exact details of the application. You know, you, you always have to give movie um, writers and filmers a little bit of leeway sure. in how they use the physics. I'm willing to do that. Um, you know, because there's different types of electricity that happen. Batteries stop working and then start working again. Current coming into houses stops working and then starts working again. Um, but one thing I really like about it is it had a very defined range, right? And the creature definitely has some sort of electric field or electric shielding mechanism. And we know that biology is able to uh, you know, generate electricity in so many different examples that some sort of messing with electricity is not surprising at all. Mm -hmm. um, the details may be a little dramatic for the, the purposes of the show, right? Um, but I do love the general principle, and I think as a biology, it, it's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. I think another potential way to think about it is it's not necessarily sucking the electricity out, but it's, you know, if it's using electricity to create the wind, right? Mm -hmm. So perhaps, it, you know, it, you know we, we think of these uh, ionic fans that, you know, you can get that use charge you know charged plates to move air through them um, you could imagine this creature has a similar system but to get the kinds of velocities of wind that we see from this creature it would have to have very powerful electrical fields and it could be less that it's uh, sucking the electricity out but more that this enormous amount of electricity is just scrambling everything that's going on if you have this mm -hmm. horror, you know this really powerful electric field you know, hitting an electric motor that's, you know, blowing the wiggly arm thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, car, car salesman thing, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it might just overload those circuits and cause the motor to just not be able to co commutate properly and shut off 
rather than actually sucking the electricity out of the space. Yeah, I mean, Ben's probably experienced this in many situations, Dan, but I can attest to how often in the lab, mm -hmm. you know, a piece of equipment is just behaving weirdly. And what we worry about all the time is the what we technically call ground loops. Mm -hmm. You know, if you haven't wired your electronics right, right and you create a big loop of electrical wire, the very, very small earth magnetic fields and other signals that get, you know, amplified in that loop just mess up everything else in the room. So you spend a lot of effort working against mm -hmm. that. And so sending in a big electrically discharging, particularly since if it's spinning things with electricity, there's maybe alternating currents it's generating. That gets really wacky. I think that's the technical term. Mm -hmm. yeah. And everything just gets, you know, whacked out. Right. <laughs> and so it's, it operates like a big EMP then is what you're saying. Uh, kind of. Yeah, sort of? actually, yeah. Because an EMP yeah. is the same kind of thing. It's a very powerful electric electromagnetic field that is so powerful that it blows the electronics up usually. Um, you know, this is, seems to be at a lower scale because the stuff can turn back on once the effect is gone. So it's enough to disrupt the electronics, but not enough to cause um, arcing and shorts that would destroy the devices. Right. Okay. Uh, I mean, it, that that makes that makes sense to me. And I just realized there's one other thing I want to talk about here that doesn't make any sense, and that's the camouflage that we see. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually when the guy from Fry's Electronics comes over and he just stares into the sky and he says, oh my God, it's real. And then they go back through the footage and you see all these clouds moving through the sky except for this one that's just floating in the distance. And I have to say... If I was the one realizing that and I saw that in real life, that would really be scary. It would be. I think that's the one mistake the creature makes. Mm -hmm. If I was a floating camouflage creature, um, I might um, float casually in ways that made it look like I was a cloud. I mean, after all, if Winnie the Pooh can master being a rain cloud in an attempt to fool bees, mm -hmm. um, and look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about, one of the greatest <laughs> scenes in film history, um, Definitely. you know... That, then, then I think, you know, our, our alien floating cloud after having evolved over centuries to master camouflage, but maybe it was tired, right? Maybe that's what happens after it eats a lot of people mm -hmm. um, and it just doesn't move then because it's so heavy. It's not floating. It's, it's doing all it can to, to stay up in the air. But I'm, I'm with you, Dan. That would be freaky. This is the part that, yeah, it doesn't really quite make sense to me because if it, if it is, you know, full and satiated from eating all those things, why is it spending energy to hold station and be a stationary cloud? Why wouldn't it just go with the wind? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it doesn't want to leave its valley, right? It's territorial. And so it has to, you know, if the wind's blowing out of the valley, it, and it it's kind of has to stick there. But, yeah, it, it's interesting that it doesn't follow the currents, which you would think a creature like this would do. Well, I'm more interested in how do you create a cloud that doesn't move? I mean, there's a lot of movement up in that level of the atmosphere. I mean, there's lots of currents. Mm -hmm. How do you create something that looks like a cloud that can float but has, that is not affected by the currents at all? Well, this is where, as, as Ben said, it does have a small propulsion system. We've seen it suck things up. It can clearly blow air out, and I think it can make minor altitude and um, thrust adjustments like mm. you see in any classic space movie Um you know, to refer to another episode, we talked about the challenges of docking a ship mm -hmm. right. um, in, mm -hmm. in our Beavis and Butthead episode. Mm -hmm. People should go watch that one. I'm just getting all the episodes nailing in today. It. Yeah, yeah, nailing it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that's 
you know, it just has that little bit of propulsion. That's what it needs. You know, it depends how big the winds are. You know, a hurricane comes through, I'd be concerned about the thing staying there. Sure. Well, I, I yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems pretty clear that it's it's just station keeping, if you will, which is, you know, holding its position in the sky mm-hmm. th- with its thrust. And it has some sort of ca- camouflage, you know, go, going back to the sea creature situation, you know, maybe it's like a cuttlefish or an octopus that can, you know, change its skin color to look like a cloud. And so now you've got a cloud, you know, a thing that looks like a cloud floating in the sky holding position because but it should it should float with the wind, not just hold position. Right. And that's a cuttlefish, not a cuttlefish, which sounds extraordinarily adorable. A fish you can just kind of warm up you know, to. I, uh, I, I think I think it can be both, Dan. I mean, what it if you want what a southern accent you're using? <laughs> you're right. I mean, it, it's they're true. very cute. They're adorable, uh, without question. Uh, but you know, what isn't adorable is a predator, and we're talking. You know, you mentioned the territorial nature here, and I think we have to remember that predators are unique creatures. You know, we think of them as they go after other creatures and eat them. I mean, that is by nature what a predator is. But they evolve along the same lines as their prey because they're uniquely suited to kind of go after and limit the population of their prey. And when you see this creature, I can't tell if it's perfectly suited to eat human beings, which would imply some part of coevolution, or if this is what I believe it to be is an alien who came down, got somehow, you know, on its way to Andromeda, kind of got caught up in our atmosphere, saw us as a, you know, easy pickings, you know, is now living in our atmosphere and is kind of, we are pretty close to what it would eat. These are the things, you know, as predators, you have to, you know, become aligned with what you're going after, which would also explain why it's hanging out in this cloud because it's got some pretty easy meals. So, Dan, for me, I think I go the opposite way for you. Uh, I could make the argument you made, but I think this is the ultimate argument that it's actually an Earth creature, not an alien. Okay. Um, And I do find it interesting, right, that they go immediately to alien creature. But think of the two paths you have to get to get there. Co-evolution of a predator, you explained that beautifully. I think that makes a lot of sense here. And it's a very easy thing to imagine. Getting through space as a creature that floats in air and clearly breathes air, um, I'm having a hard time figuring out how this thing made it through space, right? Like, um, now, it may be as a biological creature that can go dormant, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the only way I could see it getting through space. Um, it needs a propulsion system and some other things. Um, but, like, when I calculate in my head the probabilities of it getting through space and getting here, they just get smaller and smaller. When I calculate the probability of sort of co-evolving on this planet mm-hmm. and and I think about our ability to, like, pay attention to things is pretty limited. Um, you know, famous quote from Captain Kirk. I'm quoting all the great movies. You know, Khan does not think three-dimensionally very well. Mm-hmm. We are a two-dimensional creature. I don't think we're really looking in the skies for new biological creatures. Um, we're very prejudiced as to where we look for species. I think this is a co-evolved predator um, that is picking off the her- human herd at just the right rate to keep its prey alive and to keep itself satisfied. Hence the rate of you know UFO observations, Dan. I think the numbers are going strongly on the side of you know sort of earthly biological evolutionary predator that we should be scared of. Hmm. Well, I will say this. Uh, when I look at the timeline, right, if this seems like something that suddenly appeared, and as I mentioned with predators, they're evolving with their prey over a, you know millions of years, not hundreds, thousands, even hundreds of thousands, millions. 
We've seen UFO phenomenon just in the 40s, 1947, you know, Mount Rainier. That's the first documented site. Obviously, we got our ancient aliens expert here. Uh, yeah, Dan, I was going to say, you're missing a big chunk of my life here. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> we've, we've, we've seen aliens since the Nazca lines. I mean, come it, on. It is true, but I think, you know, th- I would say that it's sporadically reported, unless I'm also wrong on oh, that yeah. too. But I think okay. it's sporadically reported. There are large gaps but we've seen a very modern increase in the number. So so it's either what you're saying, they've been around forever and the population is just exponentially increasing, or this creature is a very recent visitor to Earth and it is coinciding exactly when spaceships and UFOs first appeared in our skies. And I'm going to use Ben. I'm going to put you on the spot here. you got to pick mm-hmm. one of us or make up something else. Uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's... More plausible that it's been here for quite a while, long time. Boo. I think. <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> Boo. You know, for a creature like this that clearly is is very well adapted to our atmosphere, to our biology, right? Like, you know, animals like this that have to digest things um, kind of in situ and don't have like fancy digestive systems. I feel like that that would imply that it 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 is an earthling because it 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 can survive on eating us and it's neutrally buoyant in our atmosphere. You know, if it came from a plant with a denser atmosphere, it wouldn't be able to it would float, you know, it would float away and it could never get to the ground. If it came from a place with a less dense atmosphere, it would hit the ground and and you know, get squished. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems very well suited for life here. So either it evolved here or it happened to come from a planet that was exactly like Earth. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it came from a place that from exactly like Earth. I think you you nailed it, Ben. You you really hit the hit the nail on the head there. Uh, but but I think what's important, whether I'm right or wrong or exactly right, is is not the question here, guys. We need to get to something else here, and that's filming this creature. Proof, which is the driving force of this movie, you know, master mm-hmm. of film and television, I went to film school and I got to tell you that no one, w- when you're in film school, it's almost like the military, you know, filming things and getting the shot just right. Uh, you know, people are really excited about that. The, you know, the saying is pain is temporary, film is forever. That's important here. And getting that impossible <laughs> shot drives everyone in this movie almost to the point of their death. One guy in particular, and and I, this is an aspect that I think not only just exists in this movie, but everywhere around. We are we are a very photo happy group of people. <laughs> the human beings are always looking for that impossible shot, wanting to put our name on that discovery or that news story. Uh, and I can't tell if that is something that is unique to us or if it's hardwired into our DNA and it's been brought up by recent technological advancements. Uh, I'm curious. What do you think, Denon? Yeah, I, that's a great question, Dan. I hadn't really thought of that much. And, you know, I immediately started thinking of cave paintings mm-hmm. and trying to get just that right painting of the buffalo right. or the deer or whatever it is you're hunting. I, I think there is a weird biological hardwiredness to the fact that we can imagine things, right, that we're not looking at at the moment very clearly. You know, we can imagine things we've never seen by putting together pieces of things that are similar, right? Like we make up creatures that are part human, um, part not human, perhaps like Murpho, mm-hmm. you know, an episode we also had <laughs> right. recently. That's right. right. So so when you think about that, I, I'm, I'm going, there's maybe a little bit of that hardwiredness us to capture in imagery you know, the things around us, because that is what a lot of human history has been, 
And the, the explosion of technological ways to do it has just made it that much easier and more common. I, I kind of like where you went with that, Dan. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, maybe this is a core human, deep-felt characteristic. So Instagram is our cave paintings, is what you're saying. Cave paintings are... <laughs> exactly, the, the, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think t- to a degree, but I think also, you know, David Attenborough's nature doc- documentaries are, are cave paintings, right? You know, you mm-hmm. look at, you know, the planet Earth and... And all these other amazing document documentations of our natural world, uh, you know, this is just another part of that. Now, obviously, the guy who's filming this is way more interested in kind of the horror gore of predators and not so much, you know, the na- majesty of nature. But I think it's still just the drive to catalog nature and the world we live in and, and kind of show what where humans are in the universe and part of that is showing where we are in the food chain and the environment we live in (laughs) that makes that makes a lot of sense i mean we do strive to capture everything you know not just in the world as human beings but on this show and i think we've come close i think we've come very close with this episode and i think you know there might be something that we've missed here guys and if we have this is the place to put it. This is our errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Dennett, do you have anything about Nope you wanted to talk about? Well, you know, Ben just triggered an error in addition that I didn't even realize I had, which is brilliant, mm-hmm. I think. You know, when he mentioned, we're just trying to capture where we are in the food chain, another T-shirt I expect <laughs> we'll be selling at some mm-hmm. point. Um, it immediately made me realize why everyone takes pictures of their food and posts it on Instagram. They're capturing where they are in the food chain. Um, you know. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> literally. Literally. Um, so life is just, you know, a, a mystery of life has just been explained to me. And, and Dan, we all know that that's what this show is about. Um, and I'm glad we can bring that to our listeners. Um, you know, the other interesting thing about this is I really just loved the parts about OJ. You know, his his expertise as an animal handler played such a key role in trying to get that perfect shot, right? His understanding of how a predator might behave and how you interact with it and the use of the flag as a weapon against a predator mm-hmm. – um, it made me – it was a little bit of, I think, a homage to the bullfighter and the red cape right. um, and, and just the, the use of that for distracting. Um, but I just I, – I very rarely um, these days, as you said, it's hard to do something new in film. Um, and I just found that whole process um, very, very you know satisfying as a viewer. Um, let me just put it that. So not so much an error, just like – an exciting, exciting moment. Yeah, that's definitely an addition, Tennant. That was you gave us a little addition <laughs> to that. Uh, what about what about you, Ben? Anything that you saw that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? I mean, I think this movie just kind of shows the danger of underestimating nature, right? Like, mm. you know, it starts off with you know seeing Gordy the chimp, you know, after his rampage, and you know, then we see this, you know, the the I don't know the sky jellyfish, whatever we want to call it. Uh, wrecking havoc because people are trying to mess with it too. You know, you know, to some degree, it's important that we document nature, but at the same time, you have to do it in a way that doesn't affect the nature itself, right? You know, you, you have to take that approach of staying hidden and just watching the natural behaviors way more than trying to capture, trying to entice these animals because one, it's, it's damaging potentially to the animals because you're doing things that you know, you're potentially giving them things that they don't, they shouldn't have. 
but also you're not capturing nature anymore, right? That's not, that's not what these animals are, right? If you're intentionally feeding it stuff, are you really seeing what the animals really like? You guys really went heavy, in our <laughs> heavy and long in our areas, additions, and omissions section. Uh, this is pretty intense. Um, but, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Ben. I think that there's something to that. Uh, mine are really quick. I, I got a couple of quick things here. You know, uh, Stephen Yoon, who um, I think he plays Lucky. Um, I think that's a guy's name, Lucky. Uh, he right. says, Sukasa es mi casa. And that is, that is the funniest goof on a sentence I've ever heard. Uh, your house is my house. I like that. <laughs> That's really good. Um, you know, we see them outside the, the famous spaceship fries in Burbank. I don't believe that they're in business anymore, which is a shame. Uh, I could be wrong there, but I feel like they went out of business. I love fries, and I loved how quirky all their outsides were, and that was one of my favorites. And the qu- thing, really quickly, I love the original motion picture that we see—the uh, twelve, the, the horse, the, the twelve shots of a horse running. The very the proto film. This is important. This is an interesting story really quickly that was you know, commissioned by Leland Stanford of Stanford University because he had a bet to see if a, horse's, if a horse was ever completely suspended in air. And so he hired a guy to take pictures, uh, and there were 12 of them. And if you run them forward, that's our first flip book, which then becomes, you know, eventually becomes film. Pretty impressive stuff there. Um, but that's not the only impressive stuff that we have to offer. But if you have something that you want to tell us and try to impress upon us the, the important nature of it, you can get in touch with us on social media. Easy to do. We're on Facebook, at FGGBT. We're on Twitter, at Pod. But of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name at Den and Michael. I am sorry. I rarely post pictures of my food, so you will not know where I am in the food chain. Um, <laughs> but then you can also find me on Facebook. Just stick a prof in there, at Prof Den and Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram, at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook, at Analytical Mastermind. And if you want to get in touch with the show and send us a question, well, guess what? The email address is questions at fgbt.com. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode. And finally, this show contains powerful information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. So you have to take what we've said and do good with it. You may be faced with a decision, and you always want to choose good, not evil. Always be a superhero, never a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. 
you can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio only version depending on what you like we got it for you and if you do like those videos you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well we're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn and once again if you like this show you're going to like everything that I do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening